Well, welcome everyone to Barabbas Road Church. I'm not, I'm not one to cry, but uh, it's been 105 days, 105 days since I've seen the church gathered, and I didn't know, honestly, who was going to come or not. It's been preaching to avoid. I know the people are out there, but to a camera, usually like right here. And just seeing your faces is the most encouraging, most amazing thing I could ever imagine. We are so overwhelmingly blessed. Let me just tell you a couple of reminders and, and announcements. Everything, a couple of, uh, Pastor Paul, all the people have been working really hard on all the stuff. Everything's new. And so expect, amen, right? Amen. Expect it all to be crazy though. And if things don't, you know, just, it's exciting. I'm excited that we're all here. It's like secret church. A couple of reminders. Um, this is uh, the first one I want to read to you from our uh, bulletin. If you look at the bulletin, we got a few things here. Um, as the household of God, we meet not as a public gathering, but as a special family called by God, uh, by the Lord, in which we're instructed to sing, commune, fellowship, and preach the word. And so the desire to participate, that's what we're here to do. And so obviously there's, um, you know, what we need for each other right now in this moment, in this community, is, is a lot of grace with each other. There's people of various convictions and, and, and things, and we want to definitely be gracious towards one another. But there was no possible way that I knew our church could meet in this manner without us actually uh, greeting each other with almost a holy kiss, whatever you want to see. So, uh, but be as, as, as wonderful as you want to each other because we, we really are blessed to see each other. Um, not only is this an exciting thing that we get to worship together as the actual church, we're going to take communion later today and, and the rest. We have an open house today and we haven't announced it on the Facebook and whatnot. We just said it in our things, but there's an open house um, after this at the new ministry center. And so it's been working nonstop to get the place up and running. And so the place is amazing. And so come tour that after church today. Um, it's been under development and construction and, and see what the, the address is on the bottom of your bulletin here. So definitely show up there and check it out. It is an amazing thing. And then Tuesday we have theology uh, at seven and apologetics at eight or seven forty-five, and that's live. So if you want to come to that, definitely show up. And then Obviously, after church, one more thing. Outside, we have a big yard, and so you can go back to the yard behind me, and there's a, a bunch of stuff going on. Um, there's a youth class coming up this next week. There's all sorts of things. Church is back on, and so amen for that. And so there's no, there's no better passage we could be in than 1 Corinthians. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians, and let's stand up. I'm going to read the passage today. We're going to jump into the text, and we're going to let God help us and go through this. Let's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Wow, praise God. This is the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you. And peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, I am in awe of you and your timing. Lord, we finished Exodus last week and, and, and focused on the person of Jesus Christ and just by your sovereign coincidence ended up starting 1 Corinthians, a plan we've had for almost a, six months to a year. And here we begin 1 Corinthians as the church is regathering to hear about the church and, and who we are in this moment. Lord, I can think of no better time the fact that you are constantly and sovereignly just guiding us. Please help us to be a church full of grace and mercy toward one another, but more than anything today, help us to know who we are, especially in this culture, in this time and place. Help us to know what we have in Christ, Father. Help us to know how we are together and unified so that the world can see where you are working. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I really feel like I've just said everything I can say. I, I, I mean, I, I can't believe it. But, but the biggest challenge coming into 1 Corinthians after Exodus is that in Exodus, there's no commentaries by the end that ever say anything about the text. So you get to the end, they're like, ditto, or something else. And so it's been in the desert, desert land. But go to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. You get to 1 Corinthians, and it's just, boom, there's so much to say. And so I'm going to do my best to say it. But my nervousness isn't about what, like finding what's there. It's more about making sure I can do my best to present it to you faithful people. Um, but let's go to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse 3. I want to begin because it is Father's Day, and on Mother's Day I address mothers, so I want to address fathers here. Um, for Father's Day here, let, let's notice here, uh, first, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. The, the author of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle Again, faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So what, what the author here is doing is he's saying, look, remind yourselves of the example of Jesus Christ. And then he, and he says, look, but have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Uh, really telling us to have courage, to not be faint-hearted in the community. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. And we're all prone to want to grow weary and faint-hearted right now. Amen. And so he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's the example we're given to help us be motivated right now to stand strong right now. And then he tells us, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And he goes on, he says, for the moment, all dis discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Notice the argument here, though, for a second, because it's really important that we don't miss it. The, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, I want you to be strong, even though it seems like things aren't going well necessarily. I want you to be strong, trusting that God's working, even if it seems like it's harming you at times. And the example he gives is father's. The, the example he gives is the father who's disciplining his son. Disciplining him and the son knows that the father loves him and the son receives the discipline knowing the father's doing it for his good. 
And we're supposed to see that and it's supposed to help us to know what God the Father is doing. Unfortunately, however, this example that the author of Hebrews is using is falling on deaf ears in our society. Absolutely deaf ears in our society. I have a few notes and I want to bring this up. I don't want to be polemical at all, however, but this is necessary. Our society is not falling apart because of riots and racism. It's falling apart because of fatherless homes. In 1964, for example, 25% of black children were born out of wedlock back in 1964. That means 75% were born in nuclear families with a mother and a father at home, a married mother and a married father back in 1964. That was a, that's a big statistic, 25%. The numbers have switched today. 70, over 70% of black children are born today in families without a married father at home. Now, I say this to you not to single out any one race, but I say it because what we're hearing constantly is that racism is our biggest challenge. But if the world truly believes, if the culture truly believes in racism, we'd be less concerned about defunding the police and more concerned with actually reinvesting in families and in fathers. If you go on the, the, the families, the fathers, fatherhood.org, it's a website that's been tracing this, this plight in our community. And this is for across all demographics, all races, everyone. It says uh, families that are raised, uh, that have kids in a home without a father are more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to commit crimes, and more likely to go to prison. They are two times more likely to be obese, two times more likely to drop out of high school, four times more likely to be in poverty. And they are seven times more likely to have teen pregnancies, which are going to continue the cycle again and again. I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was talking about the, um, the mandate of Black Lives Matter, the reason I pointed out as a political movement is one of their desires is to shake up heteronormative thinking and the oppressiveness of essentially a patriarchal society and a patriarchal family unit. They're against that idea. And so it's, it's a political movement. It's, it's just, it's framing things with a propaganda term, but it doesn't actually believe these things. Instead of defunding the police, I mentioned we need to open our Bibles and actually come to church. Here's why. If you go back to Exodus chapter one, just, just flip there briefly. Exodus chapter one, let's, I had to go back to it because we went through it already, right? We're experts in Exodus, hopefully. In Exodus one, remember how it began. So the, the, the Jews are in, 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 in Egypt, and they're about to be taken over, but God wants to deliver them. And so how does he affect the community and the culture when there's a Pharaoh who's wicked and against him? What does God do to give power to his people? It is not their protest. It is not their writing. What does he do to a people that are literally slaves, and they actually affected and caused the, the rulers to shake in their boots? Look at verse 7. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. If you go down to verse 9, uh, Pharaoh says, look, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now, there's an interesting article that came out this last week by Kevin DeYoung in the Gospel Coalition when they actually put a good article in. And he said, and he basically makes a case that we need a new strategy in today's culture war. If you just address the family issue, we, we were talking about just a second when fathers, for a second, the, the way the church, he says, should go forward is this, and I, and I don't want to offend anybody, but he had a great argument. He says, and I quote, have more children and disciple them like crazy. 
That's the argument. I mean, you know, like instead of like the politics of power and voting blocks, have more children disciple them like crazy. And here's why that's so important. Think for a second. As our community continues to grow, as you look at the society, society is continually telling us why children are a burden, why children are a burden on families and societies. But the church has another reason to know that children are a blessing. So I'm not saying, hey, like not everyone is able to have them. Well, that's okay. Invest in the children's church. Invest in the things. Not everyone's able to have all of them. They can, they, but whatever. What Kevin DeYoung's saying, and I think it's actually a good point, is do you want to rebel against the status quo? Well, there's nothing more rebellious than toting your children, your brood, through Target. <laughs> there's nothing more countercultural than uh, making, uh, than having children and then and more and more children. And once we have them, there's nothing more you know, important for us than discipling them to know Jesus Christ, to be someone who knows the Lord. That's where we see what? That's where we see things affected. That's where we see if we want to see the community change at all. That's our best thing. And all the stuff aside, we're like, oh, you don't care about this. You don't care about that. I'm like, real actual statistics that are actually fixed. The church is where families are strengthened. The church is where families know who they are in Christ. The church is where all races and creeds and colors come together and all are one in Christ Jesus. It's the church that is that place, right? Amen. But here's the problem. We need to know who we are. We need to know who we are. But before that, let's remind ourselves the importance of what we produce in fathers and what I was just saying. Let's take a quick look at a video. Go with me to 1 Timothy for a moment. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we begin and, and try to establish how this all relates to what we're saying, trust me, there is a, a very simple and straightforward relationship to the church. 1 Timothy 3, and let's look at verse 14. As the apostle writes to his protege, Timothy, he speaks about the church and, and what it means to be a Christian. He says to them, I hope to you, in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing thing, these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is a giant sentence. What he's saying here again is that we ought, he wants them to understand that we, how we ought to behave in the household of God. If we remember Exodus, we're going to remember that all the importance of God's dwelling place, the, the household of God. And he says that household of God is the church. It is the church of the living God, the one who dwells among us. And we in the church, this church itself is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. If we want to understand what's happening right now in our culture, it's that the church, as it's been sort of de-emphasized, we don't really even know if we're essential yet. Are we any different or more important than a nail salon or a movie theater? Honestly, that's what our culture is asking us to examine. Like, you guys can just do this and watch a video, and that's good enough. And they're telling us what's important about us gathering. They're telling us the importance of us meeting. But what Paul says is that the church is supposed to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. When you wonder why propaganda is flying everywhere and everyone's so mad at each other and everything's so crazy, it's because the church has been de-emphasized in our culture. In fact, I'll say it this way. Our culture, even if they hate the church, it needs the church because the church is the place where truth is put forth. So we have to understand who we are. We have to understand we're in the middle of a, 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 a crisis of identity. You know, we have some folks that want to say, hey, church is a place, it's a consumer place. You go in, and you go and show up in, in like a mall and you just get your self-help seminar, you know? Or you go to church and you do, and you go and it's just a big party or it's just a place where you hear a good message and you're encouraged. But we've all learned over the last 105 days that church, the gathering itself, when we sing together, to be together matters actually and really. 
And so this is that moment in, in culture. Not only that, but is the church really the answer for all of the division in our society? Is, it the, is the gospel give us another answer? Or is the church God's answer? Is this institution the one that we ought to be standing up and saying, no, this is what we need. We need the church. If we're going to do that, we need to understand the church. This is a, a, a crisis of ecclesiology. And there is no book in all of scripture that does a better job of explaining to us the church than 1 Corinthians. And so uh, just a wonderful uh, a point as we come here. 1 Corinthians is Paul, one of the earliest letters we have in the New Testament. It was written in probably AD 54 or so. And we're going to see that um, Paul founded the church in AD 51 or so. And we're going to see that in the missionary journey. So this is a mere 20 years uh, later than, you know, everything else that the church is really flourishing and going forward. And the Corinthian church is a terrible, terrible church. That's the best part of this whole book. The Corinthian church is a terrible church. And we're going to find out that this is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So we think, hey, let's go back to the first century. No, no, no. The first, the, this, was the, this was the church that, we, that people want to go back to. And it's a terrible church. Terrible in every way. And yet, Paul begins his letter trying to get them to say, here's who you are. The whole premise of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians and really 2 Corinthians is this. You are saints. This is who you are as the household of God. This is how, who you are as the church of God. Therefore, act like it. This is a profound statement. So let's go in. And the main idea of our sermon is pretty straightforward. We must know who we are together. And in the second part, when we see us Thanksgiving, we must know how we are together. And that's going to be, I think, a key point. So Paul begins in verse 1 in the beginning of this letter. Now, we have to shift gears. If you've been with us through Exodus, we've gone from a narrative, which is basically a big story, to an epistle or a letter. And so there's a genre change. There's a way we have to read it that's a bit different because when you read a letter, it's stating its purpose a little more directly. It's saying things a little more um, fully and, and, and right in front of you. And so it's kind of shocking in its directness as we're used to kind of squeezing out from the narrative what was happening before. But you'll notice a few things here. As we notice as we read through this, I want to point out something at the very beginning. I'm going to refer to it again and again. If you have a pen or if you just have your finger, I want you to look at the, the name Christ. I want to begin with that, that point. Look at verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There he is again. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Uh, verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you'll notice, there's nine verses here and Christ is referenced nine times. You know, we, we make fun of the idea, like when someone prays, we say, how many times do you say Father God, right? Like Father God, Father God, right? We say, oh, that's, but you know, Paul, there's no section in scripture that uses Christ's name so many times in this one. It's a, it's a great, I would never have picked to say that the end of Exodus that focuses on the person of Christ would lead right into 1 Corinthians, but here we are. And we see Paul really making the case at the beginning of this church that's going to be filled with division, filled with sin, as he wants to remind them of what unifies them, he does so by constantly drawing attention to the person of Jesus Christ. 
It is the basis and the, the reason for everything. And so as he begins, I want to begin by, by pointing out just a big, big broad point. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God. And then verse 3, he says, grace to you and peace from God. So we see Paul is an apostle from God, writing to the church of God, giving them a greeting of grace and peace from God. It's not Paul's greeting. It's God's greeting to God's church from God's emissary. It's it's an amazing point that we need to remember. So here he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Let's take this apart. We know who Paul is. We're going to see a little bit about his story. But him being called by the will of God is important because Paul was previously basically a hardcore contact tracer, looking for Christians anywhere, the thought police that was going to go arrest Christians and basically put them away. That's who Paul was. And here he is writing this letter, Uh, This is me, Paul, called by the will of God. This is both saying how he became an apostle, but also speaks of his authority a little bit to speak. And so as he says, look, this is me, a call to be an apostle. And the word apostle simply means a sent one, a messenger, if you will. But it takes on another ramification, if you look at all the rest of the letters, where Paul talks about this idea of of someone who's an eyewitness. And he talks about himself being an eyewitness of Christ on the road to Damascus, uh, an apostle born out of time. And so... His authority to speak is put forward right away as he introduces himself. It's very typical. But what's not typical is this guy that we see next named Sosthenes. He says, uh, and our brother Sosthenes. We'll get to him in just a minute. The the question is, is Sosthenes a a helper who helped write the letter? And I would argue, uh, I don't know. (laughs) No one knows. And so we have no idea. But I will tell you, we'll get to in a minute. Sosthenes is someone that they knew. He was a famous guy in the Corinthian church. And so what Paul's likely doing, he did this also in Colossians, is he's relating them, someone that he knows that they both know together. It's like when you meet someone, it's like, oh, do you know so-and-so? I know him too. And you talk, that's what he's doing in the letter. He's like, Paul and this guy that we all know together, that we have in common here. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. It's not to the church of Corinth from God. It is the church of God that is in Corinth. Right now, we are not at at Barabbas Road Church. We're not at Matt's Church, Paul's Church, your church. We're at God's church. This is God's church right now. This is the body of Christ. This is God's church that is in Corinth. Bronson Road. <laughs> this is God's church that's meeting at, at, at this place. And he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. The word sanctified is the word set apart. Now, we've been talking about it all this time that to be sanctified is a, a present tense process of becoming more and more like Christ. But in this sense, in the way it's used, it's not used that way. The word is a, a perfect passive participle. It's like, well, in Greek. It, it's saying that, it's so, that we have been already at one point in time set apart, and we are still set apart totally and utterly unto God already. This is not talking about a process. It's speaking about a completed action in the past with the results that are current at this moment. And so, yes, our journey of sanctification is wonderful, but it's only possible because the result of our sanctification is already decided. He's saying, he's writing to this Corinthian church, and remember who they are. We're going to find out all through these weeks that these are not the best people, and yet they're sanctified, set apart in Christ. They are called to be saints. If you have a pen, underline the word, or cross out rather the word to be. Cross it out, because the word really is called saints. I love this. Called saints. In other words, he's not saying that I'm writing to the church of God that's already been sanctified in Christ that's going to become saints. I'm writing to the church, of, the church that's sanctified in Christ called saints. This is where Christianity, the biblical Christianity, is 
scandalously different than all of the meritorious works-based faith groups out there. We don't become saints when we die and we do a certain amount of miracles or anything else. Right now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're sitting here right now as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint of God, a holy one, literally of God. This is a crazy statement. And then he says, reminding them, called, to be, called saints together. And then he says, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. There's a, a subtle rebuke here that you're going to see. What he's trying to get the Corinthian church to see that's going to be filled with division is that basically not only what we're doing, we're saying that this is God's church, but we're not God's only church. There's God's church all over the place. So there's two elements about the church that are going to be in view in Corinthians. One is what we call the universal or invisible church. The sense that what Paul's saying here is that all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord are God's church. And together, you know, that's the case. We are the universal invisible church, but the letter is written to a local church and that local church embodies fully the, the, the place of God, essentially. That's, that's kind of this idea here. And so he's reminding them of like, just as we're supposed to know who we are, we're supposed to know what we're a part of. And so this is to protect us from division, that there's different denominations, there's different emphasis at different churches, different pastors, different things, but every believer that calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus truly and utterly is our brother and sister in Christ meeting around the nation, around the world at this very moment. That's an, uh, or hopefully. <laughs> and so he said, look, it's, he's our Lord and their Lord. Both of us are receiving him and, and, and talking about him in this way. And so later when he gets into talking about divisions, he's saying, look, here's who you are in Christ. And here's who everyone else is in Christ. And so why would there be divisions? Why would you think that you're better than anyone else? So on one hand, don't have too low of an opinion of yourself because we're saints. We're the church of God. On the other hand, don't have too high of an opinion of yourself saying, well, no one else is. We're the only ones. And so he's saying all these things and he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a bunch that I want to point out here, but let's go back to Sosthenes and the rest and go to Acts chapter 18. I want to point these things out just a little bit. Acts chapter 18. So what's fun about this and what, what I've just been tickled pink by in Corinthians is just that we know so much. I just can't, I keep saying that, but I'm excited. When I want it, when I wonder what's going on something, I can like find out. Um, it's really exciting. And so here, when we say we know pretty certainly when Corinthians was written, when it was started, it's because Acts gives us a really good picture of these things. And we're going to see that some of the historical events that happened at the time, we know in history, we can, we know with almost certainty, you know, the timing of all this. And so in Acts chapter 18, we're going to learn about the church in Corinth. And the reason I bring this before us is I want us to see that more than ever, I, I never would have said this 105 days ago, more than ever, the community and the, the society in Corinth is so like ours right now. What, here's, the, here's the story. It says, after this, Paul left Athens, where he was dealing with, you know, he was debating in Athens. And, and so he's talking about, you know, in the, the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill and whatnot. And he says, after that, he goes to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila and a, a native of Pontus, uh, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius his, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so we can see this in history. We know when it was. But stop for a second and remind yourself of what's going on. He meets these guys, and why are all the Jews here? Because the Jews needed to leave Rome. And so they were leaving. There's a turmoil. There's persecution. There's a, a wondering what's going on here. And then he says, and as he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
Now, there's a couple things I want to point out in the beginning. First, the society was crazy. There was turmoil. The Jews were saying, you need to leave Rome and go here. Paul was not there campaigning for anything else. He was there doing ministry. Even as the culture was in absolute turmoil, he was doing ministry. And so we see what happens. This is, well, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own head. I'm innocent. Now look, before we go on, they opposed and reviled him. We get shocked that we're being opposed. Don't we? We, we have this idea that we're going to speak and be like, that's really respectable. Maybe I don't agree, but that's really profound. We want the world to say that to us. We're waiting for the people to hear. When you tell your parents that don't believe, or your friends don't believe, you want to be like, I don't get that, but I really respect how wonderfully smart you seem. Right? Or I really understand. No. When Paul was speaking to them, they opposed and reviled him. They were against him. They hated what he had to say. They did not want to be near him. And so his response was frustration. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. We can think of him saying, look, I'm a watchman. I've done my part. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And so what did he do? He left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. In other words, Paul got confronted. He was opposed and reviled. And so did he run from town? And it's okay if you're all moving to Texas and Alabama, wherever you're all moving. All right, I'm not criticizing you that right now. But where did he go? He went next door to the house next door of the synagogue. And there was this guy named Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. And he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And we would say, well, there's the good, happy story, but it keeps going. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Guys, we need to hear this message. Yeah. We needed to hear this. I, I'll be honest, like, I'm, I'm speaking strong in front of cameras and this and that, but I'm like, we all feel beat down, don't we? We just all feel beat down, and God is telling Paul because he felt the same way. The very idea that it, God needed to tell him this is because he needed to hear it. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you and harm you. I have many in the city who are my people. That's, I mean, right now, I'm so encouraged. I'm, I'm encouraged for the rest of the year from this. I just can't even believe it. He goes, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, we also know when this happened right in the same period, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So again, the opposition, the united, the scheming opposition like, look, we faced it. I've been facing a lot. We've all faced it. It's crazy. And Paul, it was normal. This is the, there's no, like, I want to go back to the golden age where people just had a nice, happy time and they gave the gospel jellyfish style. No, it just, no, there's a, a united attack that was brought to him before the tribunal. And so what they say, they said, this man's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They're not saying this person is saying the gospel. Say this person is what? persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. At some point, church, we have to decide if it matters that we're a church. And Paul said it matters. And so when Paul was about to open his mouth, then Gallio, Gallio says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. You can almost see the culture trying to defend us. A, I don't know, some lawyer coming out saying, hey, I understand what's going on. 
But since it's a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. It's a religious matter, essentially. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. But listen to this. And so they all, this mob, was so mad, they all seized this guy named Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. That's who was writing 1 Corinthians with Paul, who's part of it. Sosthenes, this guy that got beaten up instead of Paul. I want you to remind yourself when Paul says, that's who's writing to you these things. We have to know who we are together. He's like, I'm called to be an apostle with Sosthenes, your brother, writing to you, the church of God. Guys, we just, we've, this is a wonderful moment because we remember now, we can see clearly the blinders are off. We're like, wait, that's what's going on now. Wait, I can get this now. That might happen to me, right? So look at Acts 20. There's more to say. And uh, look at verse 28. He says he's God's apostle. He's writing to God's church, we've already said. It's the church of God. Well, notice what makes this so important when I say we need to know who we are. What gave Paul the confidence to, to cause people to want to worship God contrary to the law? What he says in verse 28 to the Ephesian elders is important to us. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Not to care for your churches, pastors, he says, to care for the church of God. Every pastor that's preaching right now is a steward of God's church. And it's God's church which he obtained with his own blood. There is no institution on planet earth that God paid for with his blood except for the church. There's none. The only institution that God paid for with his blood is this one. This is it. There is nothing more essential. There's nothing more important. We have to know how important we are. This is, who defines our importance? I would say the cross does. I would say that God's important. This isn't just merely, oh, the gospel is a good message for self-help to make you feel better. That's important to us. We have to know this. We have to claim this. We have to understand this. Go to chapter 22 of, of verse 4. When we say that we're the church of God, what does it mean? Does it mean, well, I like God, I'm part of his team, or what does it mean? Well, when Paul gives his testimony, if you start in verse 4, Paul says of 22, he says, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and those counsel of the elders can bear me witness. So what Paul did was he was going from different places. He was journeying, the rest of his, I was journeying toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul was literally finding Christians, arresting them, and then basically taking them captive and bringing them to Jerusalem to be beaten or killed. That's who Paul was. He was, again, a, a totally against the church. Why would God use Paul to remind us that no matter how much opposition you see, God is working and the gospel is stronger and the church of God is called, Paul is called by God. That's the difference here. Paul was called by God. And so he says, as I was on my way, verse six, and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church. Is that what it says? No, look again. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When we say we need to know who we are, he says, and I answered, well, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Jesus already died on a cross, rose, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He appears on the road to Damascus, and he says, why are you persecuting me? When Paul is going to arrest the church to Jesus, he says, you're persecuting me. 
Do we feel like that? I mean, about ourselves. When we say, wait, what does God feel about all the things that are happening right now? That is against me, he says. That's against Jesus. That's against who he is in Christ. That's the, the picture. It's a wonderful picture. This is the picture of our saints and what that means. This is what we have to understand about our identity. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because that's precisely what Paul's going to be saying in his letter. In 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 16. He reminds, he's going to remind the church as he speaks about you know, their, their divisions and how they need to be united. He's going to say to them, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Again, this is a, a statement of identity. Do you not know who you are? Do you know who you are? Like, we have to know who you are. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We've just studied Exodus and had we almost you know, six months talking about the tabernacle, which is really the temple. The whole thing was that it was the holy place the tabernacle. And so we see that the meticulous detail because the tabernacle is supposed to show the world this is where God dwells among men. This is the dwelling place of God with men. You want to see where God is? You want to go to the place God is? Go to the temple. Go to the tabernacle. That's where God is. And we see ultimately that we are the walking tabernacle of God. That's who we are. We are his. We are the walking tabernacle of God. We are saints. We are his holy ones. And he's Think of who he's writing to. Paul was the persecutor of the church. Sosthenes was beat up by the, by the rest of the people. And then the rest of the church itself we're going to see is kind of terrible. And so we always say, well, there's no such thing as a perfect church. It doesn't matter. It's perfect in God's eyes. It's perfect in God's eyes. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What are we afraid of, church? This is, we have to understand not only who we are, but why it's important that we understand who we are together. He's not saying you individually are God's temple. This isn't about your body of like working out and eating, you know, broccoli. He's like, hey, your body's a temple. He's like, y'all together are God's temple. If anyone destroys the church, God's temple, then God's going to destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the basis of our unity. This is the basis of the fact that every creed, every race, everything is here together. We are all one in Christ. He's one in our holiness, one in what we've been given. Go to chapter 6, verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written that the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The word body here is really a play on words. Does it mean your own personal body or the body of Christ that you're a part of? Both. It means both. He has both in view. In fact, he goes on and says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And this is plural, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Y'all are not your own, for y'all were bought with a price. So glorify God in y'all's body. That story, that picture here is about our identity. Do we believe this? The world right now wants to divide the church through sin and our union with the world. It wants to break down the church and bring you know, division in the church by making worldliness acceptable in the church. It is not divisive to stand against that, my friends. It's divisive for that to come in. That's not a good thing. In fact, he goes on in chapter 10 and notice what he says in verse 31. This is whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. What? See, we're used to hearing this message. Christian, don't offend the culture unnecessarily. Amen. There's no reason we should go out and flaunt or offend the culture. You know, I'm excited that we're meeting right now, but we're not meeting right now to be some big protest or be freedom fighters. We're meeting right now because this is God's church. This is what God wants us to do, and we're going to meet. And I'm not going to close this down ever again, and that's okay. All that said, we're not going to go out there and be like, here's my shirt saying, oh, yeah, right? Like, I'm not going to post a bunch of Facebook pictures of, you know, like social distancing, whatever. Like there's real things going on. People have real concerns, but the church is more important. When media was asked and you would talk to media all the time, like what about all the protests that are happening? You know, scientists say that COVID isn't a challenge if you're protesting. What they were saying is the culture as, as, a, as a collective agree that yes, COVID is a real thing, but protesting is more important. Okay. If the culture can say that, how much more should we be able to say, yes, it's a real thing, but this is more important? See, what our challenge is, we don't want to give, we get the idea that we don't want to offend the culture, but look at the next thing he says. Or the church of God. Do all the glory, I give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. We've forgotten this. The church is our favorite whipping boy. We love just making the church and putting it down on a constant thing. All over the place, Christians who should know better are dissing the church. Remember when Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus, why are you persecuting me? When you speak ill of the church, how would you feel? I have a beautiful wife. If you speak ill of my wife, you will hear from me. And yet we can freely talk about the church. How do you think God feels about that? How do you think Jesus feels about his bride being besmirched? Not just from the culture, but from us. From us. Listen, if you know someone and they say something crazy on Facebook, talk to them privately. Do not be smirched the bride. Be careful. We need to know who we are, whose we are. This is such a wonderful picture here. There's more. Go to 2 Corinthians 6. Paul, all of Paul's arguments are, are really based on these identity things that he's saying right at the beginning. So not only does the world want to divide us through our, our sort of sinfulness and the things that it can, it can cause happen, but it wants to divide us through syncretism, causing us to, to join our movement to movements that aren't of God. Notice what he says in verse 6. This is, again, about our ident identity. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? We say, that's great. So if you're a believer, you shouldn't marry a non-believer. If you're a business partner, maybe don't go into business with a non-believer. Like, great. But that's not the primary thing he's saying. Notice what he says. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion is of a believer share with an unbeliever? Okay, great. But then he goes on, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Go back in your minds to Exodus again. The idea that we're going to partner what the church is and take its purpose and its meaning and its identity and make it something else is akin when we allow the world to define our worship, when we allow the world to define our identity, it is no different than when Aaron allowed the people to define the worship of God with an idol, and God hated it. That's the idea here. Who defines what we do, who we are? God does, not the world. The idea of idolatry, there's no agreement with the temple of God with idols. There's no agreement with the golden calf and the tabernacle. The golden half was grinded up, it was poured into the water, and a ton of people died. He says, why? Because we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is Exodus language. Listen, we right now are the fulfillment of everything you heard about in Exodus. 
right now, this second. This is the dwelling place of God. Yeah, we've got cool wallpaper and we've got things, but it's not about the building. It's us. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Look, it, we need to be just discerning and careful about the politics and the philosophies and the things that we unite the church to. A lot of people speak very confidently about what they think God's doing, but God's told us what he's doing. He's told us what he wants us to be doing. He's told us who we are. I guess the main point when we look back at our, our introduction to this, this letter that Paul writes is that he wants us to remind us that he's called by the will of God and we're called saints by the will of God together, just like Sosthenes and everyone everywhere is called by the word of God. He is the Lord, their Lord and our Lord. And this is the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are and we need to know that to be who God wants us to be, which leads us to our last point, which is he gives in our thanksgiving. So he greets them and he thanks God for them. This is a typical greeting in a letter. Now, there's a few points here I want to bring out. He says, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So Paul isn't just remembering them at the last minute, but he's actually praying for this church. He goes, I give thanks to my God always, not sometimes, but always. It was a regular occurrence for him to pray for this church. That it, it, why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's excited about the fact that God's grace was given to them, and he's thanking God constantly. Guys, when I think about, like, if it weren't for God's grace, we wouldn't be here. And what Paul's doing is thanking God for them. Guys, I haven't gotten to see you. I've tried my best to pray for you. But man, I, can, I can't even imagine Paul who doesn't have any Facebook or media or social media is just like writing a letter being like, I miss you. Like, it's all he's left with. He goes, I'm thanking God causing that in every way. Notice these, the, the, the adjectives here. In every way you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge. In every way you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge. Guys, we need to know what we have in Christ. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know what we have in Christ. We've already been enriched in all speech. What does that mean? We, we already know what our message is. We already know it. We already know the knowledge. This is the wisdom of God, more precious than gold. We already have it. In fact, when we say that like the scripture is sufficient for us, that doesn't mean there's more. We're saying that this is everything we need to know. We have all speech, all knowledge. Speak this word, know this word. We've been given all these things in Christ Jesus, about Christ. He says, even as the testimony about Christ, the word he was saying, was confirmed among you. So you heard the gospel, then it was confirmed as we see the changed lives. One of the most profound things that happened is when the, the shutdown happened and whatnot, everyone's afraid, are people going to give in the church? And our, the giving of this church remained the same. You guys, it, it never went down at all. That's amazing. That is amazing. That is the worship of God. There's no, there's no shakedown happening. There's no trying to find people to get someone to give. I don't know who gives. That's just people that have a changed heart by God that want to worship God through giving. We have people that have been working for months on the ministry center for free. Amen. For free. We have people that are just polishing things, moving things, doing stuff. That's the, that's the gospel in action. It is, so when we talk about how, how are we this group of saints? How are we this? What, you know, it's because it's the confirmation of the gospel. Why is there unity? Why is there reconciliation? Why is it because of the gospel? 
He says, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying about not lacking any gift, the word gift is where we get the word charisma and, and charismata. And when we talk about that, he's going to get into that with giftedness. But when he says you're not lacking in any gift, sometimes commentators would say that Paul's saying, look, you have all these gifts, but he's actually not saying that. Remember earlier, he says, look, their Lord and ours and all the people in every place that have this, he's reminding the Corinthian church that look at how great you are and you're part of this bigger thing than you. And here... All these wonderful gifts you have, all speech, all knowledge confirmed among you, enriched in every way, is adequate. You're normal church. You're a normal church. The Corinthian church is not extraordinary. It is normal. It's what we have. They're not lacking in any gift. It means like you pass muster. You have what you ought to have is what he means. And he goes, and while we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ... We're waiting for the Lord. This is a political statement. We're waiting for the true King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, to come back and rule and reign on this earth. That's what we're waiting for. And we have everything we need while we wait. And we're waiting for this Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, who will sustain you guiltless. And he will do so guiltless all the way to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to rule and reign, bring perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect, you know, no tears in their eyes. He's going to be one king. And it's not going to be Mussolini. It's going to be Jesus Christ on the throne. And he's going to be reigning and ruling with the perfect rod of iron. Verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called. Brings us back to this into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, why do we feel like this? Because God's faithful. Now, chock full of all this is go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because there's a reminder not only that of who we are, but how we are together. So who are we together? We're the church of the living God. We're the temple of God, the, the walking tabernacle of God. We're the saints, the holy ones walking around. We are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building of Christ, living stones. We're all these things. But how are we these things? That's really what he's addressing in the second half. You were enriched, gifted, this, that, the other. So look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. We, we know that earlier he talks about this ministry of reconciliation, but he says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do we believe this actually? Do we actually believe that we are a new creation in Christ? What Paul's saying is, yes, we ought to believe these things. Why is this? Well, how did we get here? How did this happen? Is it because we had to sign something? Is it because we had a petition? Is it because we voted a certain way, marched a certain way, affirmed a certain statement in our policy? No, it's because look, all this is from God. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, what the world needs is that. It doesn't need our politics. It needs our Christ. That's why we love, look, y'all are great, but if I wasn't saved, maybe I wouldn't be as cool to you and you to me. Right? I mean, honestly, like the thing that causes us to come together is Christ. He's done this in us. And that's the message. And if it feels good enough for you and me, it's good enough for the, the elect that will come to know him. And so it's God's work. How have we come together? Christ. See, Christ is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Our culture wants us to count trespasses against people before they were born. Not one person alive today was a slaveholder. Not one person alive today that I know of in this room was a slave. Not one person alive today was, was bombing Pearl Harbor. Not one person alive today was, I don't know, going down the trail of tears. 
as a church, those things are dead. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. We're not counting trespasses against him because Christ didn't count trespasses against us. And he entrusted us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ready? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, in 2 Samuel, when you, there's a, a, a neat little story. David um, is going back to his kingdom, and there's this really rich guy that's with him, and he says, hey, you've helped me out. I'm going back into my kingdom. It's in 2 Samuel uh, 19, but he goes, you've really helped me in my kingdom. Come on in. You know, help me get this kingdom. Come on in and enjoy its fruits. And Barzillai, I think his name, he's, he basically says, look, I'm too old to go and enjoy this, but take my, my son and treat him the way you would treat me. That's really the story of the Christian faith. That's the story of why we're enriched in every way, why we can feel so confident that God's going to be faithful to the end, because he's treating us the way he would be treating Christ. Why is he doing that? Because he treated Christ already the way he should have treated us on the cross that God looked upon Christ and imputed to him me and treated him as me. When I look at the cross, that was God treating me, treating Christ the way he should treat me so that now when God looks at me, he can treat me the way he was supposed to treat Christ. That's what we offer to the world. That's our message. That's the story of how we're enriched in every way, how we've been given everything, and, and he's going to sustain us guiltless to the end. That's the story of how these things are supposed to happen. Go to chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians and look at verse 8. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genu- also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by your poverty might become rich. Now, this is a passage speaking about giving and, and whatnot, but the example that he points out is what God has done through Christ and how we're part of this. That Jesus became, like, left everything to us. He became poor for us to the sake of being obedient on a cross, took on flesh, took on our lot in life, and now gives us his. In other words, when we talk about privilege, when we talk about blessings, when we talk about what we have as Christians— None of us deserve it. We all are given his privilege. We're all, that's the point of the church. Why we're, we're, instead of fighting for scraps, the, the gospel is telling us. That's why when Philemon says, look, and Paul, you got Philemon, Paul, Onesimus together, and they're like talking together about this because as the church, we're the place that understands that. We're the one place on planet earth that's supposed to understand how we're together, why this all comes together in such a way, what the story of what Christ has done on our behalf actually means. We'll go to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. Ephesians 3. Look at verse 8. Paul, as he speaks about the church and how we're together, I want us to understand who we are and why this matters, but Paul says in verse 7, actually, he says, "...of this gospel is made a minister according to the gift of God's grace." That's how he began his letter to the Corinthians. Paul called me an apostle. That's why we're part of God's church, because of the gift of God's grace. Grace to you, he says, and peace from God. The gospel made a minister according to God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul was called, we are called, we're all called together. That's who we are. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, we stop there. We say, look, the only thing we need to be concerned about is talking about the gospel. But remember we said in Timothy that the, the gospel is not just by itself. One of the, you know, the pictures of the gospel in this world is the church. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the gospel. The church is the place where the gospel is made visible. Notice what he says in verse 9. I want to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What he's saying, I want to preach Christ and show people his plan. I want to give them a preview of God's plan so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The world needs to see the church together, even if they don't like it. Because all angels, demons, and cosmic powers, all people on planet Earth, whether they like it or don't like it, needs to see that in the church, that is a place where God has done a work, where he's continuing to do a work, and he will continue to do a work. To do what? To bring everything together. This is the God's wisdom in bringing the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the place where that's manifest. So everyone, like when we gather, when we meet, when we understand who we are and how we're together, do we see how important it is as we're sitting here looking at these things? Like how important is this cosmic, this right now is a cosmic testimony. You don't have to share it on Facebook. This right now is a cosmic testimony from God. That's who we are and it's what he's doing. It's how this is all coming together. Go to chapter five for a moment. Familiar passage, but he, I've been referring to this a little bit. He says, Therefore, so I mentioned that the, the cosmic testimony, but also the world itself needs to see these things. Well, look what he says, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave, us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering of sacrifice to God. And then he talks about sexual immorality and all these things that we're going to see in Corinthians. Verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of what? Because of deceptive empty words. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now, uh, what's happening here is we read this as a individual mandate. And it's not. There's a mandate to be light as the church. When we go to John, what does Jesus say? A new commandment I give to you. And what is that new commandment? That you love one another the way I've loved you. That's the new commandment. We, we miss this. We say the world, what the world needs to see is how much we love them. That's Old Testament. That's great. The world doesn't need to see this. What the world needs to see truly is how much we love each other. Like, that's how they'll know you're my disciples. That's how they'll know that this is God's dwelling place with man is the way we love one another. Love one another the way Christ loved us. That's the whole call. The world needs to see our light. It needs to see our community. It needs to see our clarity and our community. It needs to see all these things. But see, the problem is there's opposition. There's always been opposition. We've had this moment of peace, but there's always been opposition to this thing. And we find ourselves kind of upset by that. And so in John, what Jesus says is what? Go to John 16. You know, as he's talking about leaving and his witness and whatnot, he talks about these things, and we can keep in mind his mandate to the church. 
I mean, look at verse 32. He goes, look, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And yes, he's speaking about particularly in time and space, the disciples being scattered. But man, can't we feel this a little bit? The hour's coming when you'll be scattered and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. The world needs to see our clarity. We're a pillar and buttress of the truth. The world needs to see our community. It's where they know that that we're the holy ones, the saints, the household of God, the walking tabernacle. And it needs to see our courage, that Christ is overcoming. What does it say in John 1, 5? It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. That's the message that the church still holds. That's the message that we, you, know, the, you are light of the world. You don't hide your light. That is the message of courage. Now, why do we need this? Now, go, now, go with me really quickly on a journey. Let's go to Revelation set, uh, uh, 2. We're going to end it in Revelation, so, which is always fun. We referred to Exodus. Now we're going to Revelation. But this is a profound thing. So what does Jesus say? I've overcome. I've overcome the world. I've conquered the world. Well, how does 1 Corinthians begin? Here's who you are. Here's how you're together. You've been rich, blessed, glorified, all these things. And then what's just chock full of the whole thing? Christ, 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 all the way through. The Revelation 2 to 3 is basically John reporting Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, his basically audit to the seven churches, which represent churches everywhere. In Revelation. So this is how God's going to judge the church. And the thing I want to point out to you right now is that this isn't an individual call. This is a corporate judgment. Notice what happens. Let's start with the Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. Verse 7. Notice these, these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you read that as an individual? I do. We all do. And truly, it is an individual call, but who's it written to? Is it written to Matt Smith? Is it written to, you know, Bob the Builder? No, it's to the church. Yet he wasn't here. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a message to the churches for the churches to do what? To conquer. And then we'll eat of the tree of life. That's the whole goal. If you go down to verse 11, let's look at the church in Smyrna. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So why would we conquer? Jesus, be, take heart, I've overcome. We conquer by our faith in Jesus. When we, by our faith in Jesus, we conquer and we eat of the tree of life and we go to the paradise of God. By our faith in Jesus, we conquer and are not going to be hurt by the second death. Verse 17, now this is the church in Pergamum. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, written to churches. Go over to uh, verse 26, the church in Thyatira. He says, to the one, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Oh, well, that doesn't sound like church. It sounds like the one. Well, that's good. Um, to him, I'll give authority over all the nations and he will rule them with an odd rod of iron. And when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow, go to chapter 3, look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed in, in thus in white. This is to the church of uh, Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Church in Philadelphia, verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, in verse 21, the church of Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why is this so important to us right now? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have a mission. Our society, the cosmos and everything else needs not only our faithful gospel witness, but our proper ecclesiology. We need to understand who we are and how we're together and why it matters. We are called to be together, to conquer. That's who God's church is. God's church is meant to conquer. Again, conquer, 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 conquer. We're meant to stand strong, light in the darkness. Of all times, like we are facing a time where I think, I, I said it multiple times, I think there will be a pendulum shift in our culture and it'll be happy glory for a little bit, maybe 20 years, I don't know. But maybe not. Maybe not. We have to think this matters because the Bible says it does. It's not just, oh, it's just the gospel. No, no, no. The church is called to conquer. The church is called to conquer. It was uh, written, and we see a letter of, uh, reminding us of these things. Look, a letter to the church from God's apostle that was called by God, to the church that is called by saints, that is you know, made faithful in our fellowship of the sons. When we think about this idea of conquering, it should cause us to be afraid. I mean, if you could be honest with yourselves, haven't you felt a little bit scared of just the government or public opinion or shaming or the way that culture is moving, it causes us a little trepidation and fear. If you're honest, I do. And then I remember that he's like, look, this is what we're called to be and do as a church to conquer. And he says, I've overcome these things. What are we afraid of, church? This is our moment. We know who we are. We know how we're together. We know whose we are. We have nothing to be afraid of. Let's take a quick look at a video. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what the media is going to bring, our culture is going to bring, but we are a people that have been brittle. We've been dry. We've dealt with the easy divisions that can come up from politics and sin and emotion unrestrained. We need each other. Lord, we are facing a a moment, a crisis of ecclesiology in our culture where people are wondering if the church is even essential God, I thank you for your message from 1 Corinthians, the message to the church, that it's your church, the church that you bought with your own blood, the blood of your own son. Lord, help us to value your church and help us to be willing to stand up. And God, if we're going to perish because we are in your church, then let us perish singing praises to your name. God, I ask that we would be gracious and loving, and we would see true unity based on the person of Jesus Christ. I pray for those that don't know you, that they would come into the gospel, into the family of God through the gospel, that we would be gospel people, treating one another with grace and mercy as reconcilers of, of the, with the message of reconciliation. God, I pray that we are so encouraged this week, that this is the best week we've had thus far going forward in our lives, and that we just go from glory to glory until you come quickly to receive us. God, we ask that you would bless the rest of this week. Help us to be wonderful witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.